You're listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org. Today's story is from the book of Exodus, chapter 31. When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses two tablets of testimony, slabs of stone, written with the finger of God. When the people realized that Moses was taking forever in coming down off the mountain, they rallied around Aaron and said, Do something. Make gods for us who will lead us. That Moses, the man who got us out of Egypt, who knows what's happened to him? So Aaron told them, Take off the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. They all did it. They removed the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands and cast it in the form of a calf, shaping it with an engraving tool. The people responded with enthusiasm. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out from Egypt. Aaron, taking in the situation, built an altar before the calf. Aaron then announced, tomorrow is a feast day to God. Early the next morning, the people got up and offered whole burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and then began to party. It turned into a wild party. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Those of you who have been here for our campfire stories before know that we're focusing on the story first and then we'll get the take-home bit. So this, this is mostly focused on the story. I invite you to pray with me. God, please, mas- please bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place that we would take from this story echoes of our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment a calf made entirely of gold. Scripture doesn't say how big the calf was, so we don't know if it was a little tabletop calf or a calf the size of an actual physical calf or perhaps a calf the size of a world's largest cow made out of butter that you'd find at a state fair. But I want you to imagine whatever size calf comes to mind in the middle of a desert and then imagine people dancing and singing around this calf, giving it offerings, singing praises to this calf as if it were the one who had brought the people out of Israel. Have that image in your head for a moment. Moses had gone up the mountain. He was gone a little bit too long. The people got restless. They were a little reckless. They turned to Aaron. They said, do something for us. And Aaron said, let's make a calf. Give me your gold. Give me your rings. Let's create something we can see. The Israelite story is one of constant deliverance. How did we get to this point? How did we get to this moment of worshiping a calf? Well, it turns out it's quite a story. You have to go back many years. Some of you heard a few weeks ago, Pastor Amy talked about Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, the one who had 
made a covenant with God. God had said, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the sand beneath your feet. And one of Jacob's sons was named Joseph. You probably remember his story, but in case you need the 30-second recap, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers and then rose to be the second-in-command in the entire nation, second only to Pharaoh. Now, when a famine hit up north where Joseph's family was, the whole family traveled south and made their new home in Egypt. That's all 11 other brothers, all of their wives and their sons and their, their um, daughters and their grandchildren, and all of them schlepped down to Egypt with all of their things. And they did well for themselves. They stuck around. They decided to live in Egypt. And they multiplied, and they farmed, and they traded, and they became part of the Egyptian landscape. And after many years of peace and prosperity, a pharaoh arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. A pharaoh arose in Egypt who did not know the legacy of Joseph and all of his descendants. And that is really where the trouble began for the Israelites. The pharaoh said, I don't like all these immigrants. I don't like all these foreigners living in our midst. There are more of them than there are of us. We have to do something about this. This is a problem. And so the Egyptians started to put the Israelites to work. They enslaved them. They tasked them with very hard labor. They forced them to build bricks. They made them do the jobs nobody else wanted to do. But the Israelites still prospered in slavery. And the Pharaoh said, all right, it's time to take some more drastic action. Every Israelite boy who is born is to be tossed in the Nile River and eliminated. This is some very callous king stuff to take little babies and toss them in the Nile River. Something similar was declared shortly after Jesus was born. You may recall his parents fled south to Egypt, ironically, to escape that king's decree. Most of us have heard the story of little baby Moses in the basket. He was escaping certain death. And his mother put him in a reed basket and floated him on the Nile River, the very Nile River that was supposed to bring his destruction, and she chose a very strategic point. She chose the place where Pharaoh's daughter regularly came out to have her bath. And when Pharaoh's daughter approaches the Nile River to take her bath, she encounters Moses standing at the bank or sitting, floating in the bank of the river in his basket. And it turns out she adopts him as her own son. And she hires Moses' birth mother to raise him and take care of him and nurse him until he's a little bit older. And years pass. Moses is raised as an Egyptian in the palace as Pharaoh's child, or as Pharaoh's daughter's child, Pharaoh's grandchild. He gets in some trouble with the law when he gets to be an adult. He flees Egypt. I'm glossing over some details here, but he lands in Midian. He gets married. He has some kids. He learns to be a shepherd and tend a flock of sheep. Uh, lots of shepherds in the Bible, a very important profession for us with modern eyes, a humble profession in their day. And meanwhile, Pharaoh, who had been Moses' grandfather, who had tried to kill all of the Israelite boys, passes away. And the Israelites are still in slavery. A new Pharaoh rises to power. The Israelites are crying out to God, and God hears their cries. And God calls Moses to deliver the people. Moses enlists the help of his brother Aaron, who supposedly is the one who's really good at talking in their family. And Moses and Aaron start by asking Pharaoh rather politely, please, 
will you let the Israelites go for just three days so we can go into the wilderness and offer praises to God? Three days. And Pharaoh refuses because he's a stubborn leader and he says, oh no, not only can you not go into the wilderness, but I'm going to make things harder for the Israelites. No longer will they have straw to make their bricks. Straw was an essential ingredient in making their bricks, and instead their work will be two times harder to do. And the Israelites, instead of being thankful that Moses tried to intervene on their behalf, were pretty cranky about it because their life had just gotten twice as difficult. And they said, Moses, why would you do such a thing? Complaint number one from the Israelites. And God gives Moses a grand speech to remind him what he's doing, remind him who God is, remind him of his calling, and Moses returns to Pharaoh with Aaron and they try again. This time, God provides a miraculous sign. Shepherd, uh, Moses is carrying his shepherd's crook that he used for his flock of sheep and he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. One would think Pharaoh would be impressed, but his magic men can all do something similar and he says, no, I'm not letting the people go. When God hears this, God goes for an even more dramatic kind of option. The Nile River, you'll remember the source of life in Egypt, all their farming, their water supply, everything was based on the Nile. The Nile was also a source of death. That's where the boys and the babies were tossed in the era of um, eliminating those children. So source of life, source of death, very symbolic river. Moses picks a strategic point on the Nile River where he knows Pharaoh will come to wash. When Pharaoh approaches the Nile River to have his bath, he encounters Moses at the bank of the river with his shepherd's staff, and Moses hits the staff into the bank of the river, and the entire river, you know the story, turns into blood. It's an eerie symbol of what the Pharaoh had wrought on the Hebrew people. And of course, the people no longer can drink the water. They can't drink it, they can't bathe in it, they can't fish in it, the fish can't survive in it. It's more than a parlor trick, it upends the entire life of the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh is stubborn. His heart is hardened, scripture tells us, and he says, I'm still not letting all these people go, which is ironic. He had wanted to get rid of them in the first place, and now he won't let them go. So Moses performs other miraculous signs with God's help. Frogs invade the entire country. People are covered in boils from head to toe. There are gnats and lice and flies and, depending on your translation, all kinds of other awful creepy crawlies. Darkness descends on the country for three days straight. I imagine things were in chaos at this point. I imagine the people were rioting. What is going on in our nation? And yet, Pharaoh would not relent. Meanwhile, God tells Moses, who tells Aaron, tell all the Israelites to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask them for their gold and for their silver, their necklaces, their earrings, their rings. Well, the Egyptians liked the Israelites, and so they were more than willing to lend to their neighbors their jewelry. Friends asking friends to borrow something to wear. And so the Israelites had all these things with them. The Israelites had lived in Egypt for 430 years. They'd lived there a long time. But their exit was quick, and it happened in the middle of the night. They left carrying their bread before it even had time to rise, strapped on their back with their clothes. They left 
their pockets filled with gold from their Egyptian neighbors. They left with Moses carrying the bones of Joseph, who had come down to Egypt first, because he had made his descendants promise to inter him back in his homeland. They traveled by night. And the reason they had to exit so quickly and in such a dramatic fashion was that the firstborn of every Egyptian household had died suddenly, and all of the Israelites had been passed over by God's grace. And so they traveled away from the Nile, they traveled away from Egypt. Pharaoh was livid, as you might imagine, and God guided the people. God was a fire, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of smoke by day, going before them, showing them the way. The Israelites receive word that Pharaoh has changed his mind and is now hot on their tail to bring them back. And so they get to the edge of the Red Sea and again, another dramatic, iconic moment in the Bible. Moses takes his shepherd's crook and by the grace of God, when he hits it on the bank of the river, the waters part and all the Israelites walk through on dry land. And when, the, when Pharaoh's army starts to cross as well, the river or the, the waters close back up and all of them goners. Songs are sung after this moment about God's providence, about God's goodness, about how God has delivered them out of Egypt. After this climactic moment, they wander for three days in the desert, and they have no water. Three days, by the way, is about as long as a human being can survive without water. And I imagine they had flasks or water bottles or, you know, that kind of thing they were taking with them. But they were nervous, and they were cranky. And God shows Moses a way to make the water drinkable and then leads them to a spring where there are 12 springs of water to make it very clear, okay, I will provide for you in the desert. So one might think the Israelites would get the clue by then that God is with them, that God is going to provide for them. But not quite. They continue to wander in the desert and then they have no food. And the Israelites in classic fashion say, you know, at least in Egypt, we had meat, we had bread, We had water. At least in Egypt, we knew where our next meal was coming from. Moses, did you bring us out into the wilderness to kill us? Seems a little dramatic, and yet that's their refrain throughout Scripture. Did you bring us out here to kill us? It was a lot better back in slavery. God hears their cries again, and God provides manna from heaven, quail from heaven, food dropping from the sky to provide for the Hebrew people. And they travel again in the desert, and again there's no water, and again the Israelites say, why did you bring us out here to kill us, Moses? And again, God provides, and Moses hits a rock with his staff, and a spring is opened up, and the people are provided for. Eventually, they arrive at Sinai, both a desert and a mountain, and the famous, uh, the famous location of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. And God instead of being the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire, starts swirling around the top of the mountain as a dark cloud to let the people know God is present in this place. And Moses and more than 70 other leaders approach the mountain and they go partway up and they encounter God's presence on this mountain. Then they return back down and Moses says, you know, I'm going to go up this mountain myself now to encounter God, to receive God's word. Wait for me here. I would think at this point, with the journey that they'd been on, with the amazing miracles that they'd seen, with the fact that 70 of the leaders had gone up the mountain and seen God, that they would feel content to wait. And yet, 
when Moses is up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, the Israelites said, he's taking too long up there. 430 years in Egypt, he's taking too long up there with 40 days. We need a God we can see. Well, what happened to those 70 other leaders who had just met God, who had just seen God? Where were they in this story? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Aaron says, because Aaron was left in charge while Moses was up on the mountain, give me your earrings. Remember, these are the earrings that many of them had taken from the Egyptians, a symbol of their deliverance, a reminder that God has been with them. And Aaron says, give me your gold. And Aaron cast that gold into the form of a calf. And the people said, these are your gods who brought us out of Egypt. They gave offerings, they sang songs, they celebrated this thing they could see, this thing they had made with their own hands, rather than trusting in the God who they felt like they couldn't see. Now, ultimately, we know the rest of the story. We know that Moses did, in fact, come down from the mountain. We know that he brought the Ten Commandments and all kinds of other rules that would provide the basis of faith for generations to follow. We know that God did, in fact, lead the people to the place they could call home, and we know that Joseph's bones were taken back to his birthplace and laid to rest properly. For right now, though, we leave the people on Mount Sinai, attempting to trust in something they can see, not sure about trusting this God they can't see. We leave them in this place full of doubts and uncertainty, we leave them in the middle of the journey. And to me, as someone on a faith journey, this seems fitting. We don't always get the entirety of the story. Sometimes we're somewhere along the road. So, may we remember these people who God consistently provided for. May we remember these people who consistently doubted. May we remember that God is with us always. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org.